The following audio is from Jacob's Well Church. For more information about Jacob's Well Church, please visit www.jacobswellgb.org. Trisha, my wife, her father, who weathers in Texas, actually flew up for the game on Thursday from Texas, and he was connecting through Chicago. And as he landed in Chicago and got off the plane, he found out that his flight from Chicago to Green Bay had been canceled because of the weather. And so he found two other men and a mom with a one-year-old child, and together they rented a car. And he has never seen planes, trains, and automobiles, so he had no idea what he was getting into, but they got in this car and they headed north from Chicago to Milwaukee, and evidently the roads were completely ice-covered, and so traffic was moving at a crawl. They went into Milwaukee and they wanted to get on 41 North to go up towards Oshkosh and evidently the signs are not very good. And so they ended up in a very rough part of town. Eventually they made it up to Oshkosh where they were going to drop off a mother and her one-year-old child. And they were supposed to meet this woman's husband at a gas station along the highway because her house was actually a half hour off the highway along Lake Winnebago. Well, they got to the gas station and the husband wasn't there and they waited and they waited and the man never showed up. And so to add to their journey, they traveled a half hour into Oshkosh and they got to the woman's house and they get out and they take the woman and her child and her luggage inside. And there is her husband sitting on the couch watching TV. I don't know if he had forgotten to pick her up or just simply determined to abandon her. But you can imagine how hurt she must have felt, how lonely she must have felt in her household, how angry she was. We're dipping into the book of Exodus and we're reading about a people that feel like they have been forgotten by God that feel like they have been abandoned by God. If you would please open up to Exodus chapter 2. Exodus is the second book of the Bible, Genesis and then Exodus. So it's near the beginning and we'll start in chapter 1. The book of Exodus is a historical account written by Moses. And the first audience of this, as I mentioned, was the Israelites the Israelites who were both wandering and wondering. They were wandering in the wilderness. It is after the Exodus, and then they're reading this account. So they're wandering in the wilderness, waiting to go into the promised land. And they are wondering, they're wondering, where is God? Has God abandoned us? Has God abandoned his promises? Maybe you've had that feeling. Late at night, alone in your bed, life hasn't turned out the way you'd hoped for. Your prayers have not been answered. And you have asked the question, Lord, where are you? In this story of Exodus that we look through, it's such a wonderful story. It's such a wonderfully true story. And I love preaching through the Old Testament. Because the great truths that we read about in the New Testament, 
are demonstrated tangibly through stories in the Old Testament. The great truths of the gospel, of God's love, of God's faithfulness that we read in the New Testament are demonstrated through the historical story of the people of God. And so Moses is writing to these Israelites that are wandering and wondering. And he is relaying a story that communicates the goodness and the faithfulness and the nearness of God. Even when he seems silent. Even when he seems distant. Even when it seems that he has forgotten them. And so I'm excited to dig into Exodus and we're covering large chunks of scripture. And usually when we cover large chunks, we read a little bit, talk a little bit, so on and so forth. And so before we dig in, let's open in a word of prayer. Lord God, we come this morning confessing that there are many times throughout our week that we don't sense your nearness, that we wonder about your faithfulness and your promises and your goodness and your love towards us. Pray, Lord, as we read this story, our story, the story of our people, the people, the church, that we would be reminded of how good and loving and faithful you are to us as your people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The question the Israelites wandering and wondering in the wilderness We're thinking, we're, can we trust God? Can we trust God with our entire life or is he going to fail us? And we are going to see four things throughout this passage that reminds us that we can trust God with everything in our life. The first is that God always fulfills his promises. Look with me in verse one of Exodus chapter one. Just keep your Bibles open because we're going to be going back to it time and time again. Exodus one, verse one. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and all the generations But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now, something interesting is that this passage was originally written in Hebrew. And if you look back to the original passage, this book starts with the word and. It's a very strange way to start a historical story. It starts with the word and. And, and so literally, if you were to read this, what it would say is, and these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. Now, if you're not a language major, and is what we call a conjunction. And and is a conjunction that combines two words or two thoughts or two clauses. Well, in this case, the word and combines two books. It combines the book of Genesis and Exodus. The word and reminds us that Exodus... It's a sequel to the book of Genesis. That Exodus is a continue of the story that we see in Genesis. Now, what makes it even more interesting and more strange is that between the last chapter of Genesis and the first chapter of Exodus is about 400 years. 400 years. 
What was happening here 400 years ago? Not much. 400 years between the last chapter of Genesis and the first chapter of Exodus. And yet Moses starts this book inspired by God with the word and. Because he wants us to see the connection between the two books. And so what is the connection between Genesis and Exodus? And why does it matter to us? Well, in Genesis chapter 12, we read about how the Lord comes to this man, this unknown man named Abraham. And he makes this amazing promise to Abraham. He says, it says, now the Lord said to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house and the land I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, meaning he will have lots and lots and lots of descendants. Now, the problem with this is that Sarah, his wife, is barren. And we see that throughout Genesis, this continues to be a threat to the promise that God gave to Abraham. God promises Abraham, you'll have many descendants, as numerous as the stars. It will be a great nation. But what we see is barrenness attacks this promise time and time again. And so Sarah, who is not just barren at 26, but also at 36 and 46 and 56 and 66 and 76 and 86 has a baby at age 90. And God fulfills his promise to give him a child. And Sarah has a baby and his name is Isaac. Isaac grows up and he marries a woman named Rebecca. And Rebecca is barren. Rebecca and Isaac prayed to the Lord, and she conceived and gave birth to a son, to two sons, Jacob and Esau. Jacob is the chosen one of God. He grows up. He gets married to a woman named Rachel. She, too, was barren. There is something in the water. All the women are barren. And so it attacks, it's adversarial to this promise of God to bring from Abraham a great number of descendants that would form into a nation. There's other things that threaten this promise, such as starvation and famine. In Genesis 12, we read of a famine that that Abraham has to go down to Egypt because the famine is so severe in the land. In Genesis 26, we read there was a famine in the land besides the former one. In the days of Abraham, and Isaac went to Gerar, to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. And then in Genesis 41 and 42, there is a seven-year famine. And all of these are threatening the promise of God to bring from Abraham a great nation. But it doesn't end there. There are other threats. This promise is also threatened by adultery, by polygamy, even by sibling rivalry. But then we get to Exodus 1, verse 7. 500, 600 years after the promise is given to Abraham. And we see that God always fulfills his promises. Not necessarily on our timing, right? I'm guessing Abraham did not think it would be 600 years. But God always fulfills his promises. Look with me in verse 7. and You will see how emphatic this is in five different ways. Moses is telling us that God has fulfilled his promise to bring a nation out of the lineage of Abraham. It says, but the people of Israel were fruitful. There's one. Increased greatly. Two. They multiplied. Three. And grew exceedingly strong. Four. And the land was filled with them. The sheer multitude is a theme that carries throughout 
Exodus chapter 1 and the rest of Exodus. And what we see is that God always fulfills his promises. You know, this is important to us. Because this story that we read in Exodus is not the story of some distant, far-off, ancient nation that we have no connection to. You see, if, if, the, if the book of Genesis is about God's creation of the world, the book of Exodus is about God's creation of his church, of his people. In the Old Testament, they were called Israel. In the New Testament, they were called the church. And so this is our story, as we sang in that song. And so this is important to us because this is a picture of the redemption that we have in Christ through the people of God in the book of Exodus. There are many promises that God gives us today. Many promises that we must cling to for our joy and for our hope and for our comfort. Galatians 6, 9 says, gives this promise. God says, let us not lose heart in doing good. For in due time, we will reap if we do not grow weary. Are you growing weary? Or are you believing the promise of God? Philippians 4, 6 through 7. We just covered this. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, present your request to God. And the peace of God, this is the promise, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. Are you filled with anxiety or are you trusting in the promises of God? Philippians 4.19, my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Are you grasping for more and more and more? Are, are you trusting the promises of God? Matthew eleven twenty eight through 29, Jesus says, come to me. This is a promise to us. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Are you heavy laden? When you are heavy laden, when you are burdened, where do you go? What idols do you go to? Or do you believe the promises of God and go to Jesus and know that he will give us rest. Finally, Romans ten nineteen says, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. This is God's promise that if you believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and was raised to new life, you will be raised as well. Do you believe the promises of God when God seems silent? It's been said, you can't break God's promises by leaning on them. What promises do you need to lean on more? What promises have you stopped believing? When life is hard, when God seems distant, what promises do you need to recall? God always fulfills his promises. We must lean on his promises and take comfort in his promises and rejoice in his in his promises because his promises always come true. And so the first reason we can trust God with our whole life is because God is always faithful to his promises. The second reason is because God always uses our suffering for good. Verse 8. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, behold, 
the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. God had so abundantly blessed his people to make them into this great nation that Pharaoh was scared. And Pharaoh decided to control them. He would oppress them by breaking their spirits, by impoverishing them, by disorganizing them, by dehumanizing them. Could you imagine what it would be to put under slavery today? You'd probably lose friendships, relationships, maybe family. You'd lose your work. You'd be assigned somewhere else. It would be a horribly oppressive thing. As we read on in Exodus, it gets even worse, as we'll see later. Not only do they enslave them, but they start systematically killing off the Hebrews. It's not that different than things that are going on in the world today, but it is a horrible, horrible situation. And if any of these Israelites are like me, I'm guessing they are asking the question, Lord, where are you? Why are you letting this happen to me? In the following chapters, we get to see how the Lord takes this very wicked and very evil oppression and uses it for good. You know, I think one of the reasons why God allows this suffering in Egypt is because the Israelites are a little bit too comfortable in Egypt. If you remember, the Israelites were told to return to the promised land but they had settled for second best. Egypt was easy. And so they lacked motivation to get up and go and move to the promised land of Canaan. As we read later in the book, it's interesting because after the Exodus, after God delivers them out of Egypt and the people of God are headed to Canaan, headed to the promised land, they have the audacity to say this. They said, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt, There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. And so you see God is doing something in them in the midst of suffering to move them out of the land of Egypt into the promised land. It kind of reminds me of a grown child, you know, living at home because mom does his laundry, does the cooking for him has no motivation to move out of the house. And so mom and dad start making him pay rent and start making him do his own cooking and his own laundry to make him discomfortable because they love him and want him to move on to a better place. We can see even in the midst of this horrible suffering, God is using it for good to push them out of Egypt back into the promised land of Canaan. We know that God is not the author of, of evil or suffering. 
yet he is sovereign over it all. And he will use it for the good of his people. You know, we have the benefit that Israelites did not have. We have the rest of the story. We know how God is going to use this for good. It's a privilege that they did not have. There is suffering in your life. Maybe the fracture of a relationship, maybe physical suffering, maybe suffering through your work or whatever it might be. There is suffering in your life. And you are probably asking the question, why, oh Lord, are you letting this happen? But remember, just as the Israelites did not know the end of their story, you don't know the end of yours. And God has a plan for your suffering. God promises never to waste your suffering. Romans 8, 28, a passage that many of you are probably familiar with says this, and it's another promise from God, which he is always faithful to his promises, as we have said. Romans 8, 28, and we know that for those who love God, the church, the people of God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And it goes on to say, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined for what? To be conformed to the image of his son. This past weekend, we went on an elders retreat and we were watching a sermon by Paul Tripp. And he was talking about Jesus, how he had sent the disciples out on the boat. He made them go. And as they were rowing in the boat, there was this great storm. And then Jesus came and came by the boat so that they could see him. And Paul Tripp makes this application. And I'll read it to you twice because it's a little bit complicated, but extremely profound. He says this, God will take you where you do not want to go in order to produce in you what you could not achieve on your own. Here it is again. God will take you where you do not want to go. Suffering, pain, none of us want that. God will take you where you do not want to go in order to produce in you what you could not achieve on your own. None of us want to suffer. Unless you're masochistic, none of us want to suffer. And yet, what we see is that in the midst of suffering, for the children of God, you are not being forsaken, you're being loved. And your suffering is a gift of God's grace, not of relief, but his grace of refinement as he is conforming you into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. God always uses you're suffering for good. And we know that this promise from God always comes true. And so that's one more reason we can trust God with our life. The third reason, as we continue with the story, the true historical story, is that God always blesses those who fear him. Look in verse 15 with me. It says, Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Puah, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on their birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. Now, in ancient times, infant side was not so unusual, but usually they would take out the girl children. They would kill the girl children. There's actually a, a letter that has been recovered in which a gentleman from Rome goes on a business trip and he writes back to his pregnant wife and he says, I hope all is well. If the baby is born while I'm gone, that's fine. But if it's a girl, kill it. Just kill it. And even today, there are, I, I heard of a, a village in China in which there are 20 boys and one girl. 
Because women are seen as not as valuable to many cultures, to the Egyptian culture, to Chinese culture, to many cultures today. Women are just not seen as being that valuable. They cannot carry on the name of the family. They cannot carry on the business of the family. They can't, they can't hold many positions in government. And because of this very reason, Pharaoh wanted to kill the boys, the Hebrew Boys, this was a form of ethnic cleansing in which Pharaoh was hoping that the Israelite women would intermarry with Egyptian women and then they would adopt the gods of Egypt and have loyalty to Egypt and they have no reason to leave Egypt. Now, as we see how the Egyptian society and much of ancient societies and even some contemporary society do not value women. God makes it overwhelmingly clear that he does. That women are critical to his church. That women are critical to his plan of salvation. Look with me again, verse 17. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. These midwives were women of great courage. They were opposing quite possibly the most powerful man on earth. They were opposing man with just one word could enslave their entire people. They were opposing a man with just one word could say, kill all the babies and they would do it. This was a powerful man. And certainly there must be some fear and reverence towards him. But they did not obey his command because they feared one greater than Pharaoh. We see the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. Verse 18. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this? And let the male children live. The midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. Because the midwives feared God, more than Pharaoh, they disobeyed Pharaoh. They disobeyed the governing authorities. They lied to Pharaoh. They even mocked the Egyptian women saying, they're not as strong as our women. How does God feel about this behavior? Well, it continues. So God, verse 20, God dealt with the midwives, dealt well with the midwives. And the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Now, it's commonly believed that these midwives were midwives because they didn't have children. Um, they would have to get up in the middle of the night. They'd have to be gone a lot. And so they would choose women that were barren, women that did not have children to be midwives. And because of their response of fearing God more than fearing man, God blessed them with children. Now, it's so interesting because the authorities, the government of that time, and even of this time, Many times believes that children are not a blessing, but they are a burden. And yet God says, I will bless you by giving you children. Now, just as a side note, because I think it comes up here and it's important. What is the relationship that we are to have with government? Is God telling us that we should disobey the government? And if we disobey the government, we will be blessed by God. Well, in Romans 13 it tells us, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been 
instituted by God. Therefore, whomever resists the authorities, resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. And so here in Romans 13, we are told to obey the governing authorities. But then in Exodus chapter 1, we see these women disobeying the governing authorities, and God blesses them for it. We also see that happen in Daniel's life. And in Rahab, they disobey the governing authorities, and God blesses them. He rescues them. He saves them. He delivers them for civil disobedience. And so when are we called to obey the authorities, and when are we called to disobey the authorities? Well, Tim Keller puts it in a very succinct way that I thought was very helpful. He says this, when a human government forbids what God commands or commands what God forbids, we are duty-bound to obey God and not men. Or to put it another way, if you have to choose between obeying God and obeying man, obey God, fear God. Like the midwives, we are to recognize there is a greater authority than the government, a greater authority that we are called to fear. Matthew 10, 28, Jesus says, do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Talking about people, the government, mere mortals. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell, which is God. There is nothing in scripture against us paying taxes. In fact, Jesus says, give to Caesar what is Caesar, give to God what is God's. And so we're not called to disobey and not pay our taxes. But if the government mandates that we supply abortion, whether it be through showing up at abortion clinic or thereby simply providing a pill for the day after to abort a child, we are called to fear God above man and to disobey the governing authorities, even if it means we lose our business. And so we're called to fear God more than man. Now, this is the main point, is that God always blesses those who fear him. As we look throughout the scripture, we see this proven time and time again. In Proverbs, we are told that those who fear God will be endowed with wisdom. In Ecclesiastes, we're told that those who fear God and keep his commands will enjoy sweet communion with God. In Luke, we are told that those who fear the Lord are blessed with God's mercy. In Ephesians 5, we are told those who fear the Lord will have unity in the body of Christ. In 2 Corinthians, we are told that those who fear the Lord will cleanse themselves from all unfilthiness and from all of the self-destructive behaviors. In Psalms, we are told that those who fear the Lord will be blessed by the all of God. And it tells us that those who fear the Lord will be saved. God always blesses those who fear him above all else. And so just to recap, God always fulfills his promises in his timing. God always uses our suffering for good. And God always blesses those who fear him above all. Finally, God always accomplishes his plan of salvation. Look in verse 22 with me. It says, And Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Verse one. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife, a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket, literally an ark. It's the same word. A basket 
made of bulrushes and, and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. So this is the third step of Pharaoh, right? I oppressed them. They just got bigger. I commanded the midwives to kill the boys. That didn't happen. So the third step is he orders every Egyptian. If you see a Hebrew boy, kill him. Throw him into the river. And so fear grows among the Hebrews. And we see this Levite woman in an act of utter desperation, placing her child into this little ark, this little basket, and saying, Lord, save this child, and sending him off. Verse 4. And his sister, the baby sister, stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh, excuse me, and Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me and I will give you your wages. So this woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, probably about five years old, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. God's glory shines brightly in this extremely ironic passage. Pharaoh commands all the people of Egypt, if you find a Hebrew baby, kill it. And yet it is in Pharaoh's own household that a Hebrew baby is saved. It is his own daughter, the one closest to him, that takes this Hebrew boy out of the water. And it just happens to be the very Hebrew boy that God is going to use to deliver the Hebrew people. Our God is so amazing that he uses the efforts of his enemies for his own purposes of salvation. If it were not for the edict of Pharaoh to throw the babies into the Nile, Moses would have stayed at home, would have stayed with his folks. But because of this edict to kill all the babies, he is sent into the river and he is raised for a few years, knowing his Hebrew heritage and then transferred over, receiving the best education of Egypt, training him to be a leader of God's people. God is rescuing his people through the very empire and the very household that is trying to eliminate them. God is delivering his deliverer to the will and order of Pharaoh. It must be so frustrating to oppose God. Whatever Pharaoh does, not only seems to backfire, but it actually carries out the will of God for the salvation of the people of God. This is further emphasized in the naming of the baby. It says that she named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. Moses sounds like to draw out or to rescue out of the water. And yet one day through Moses, God would draw out his people from Egypt and they would, he wouldn't draw them out of the water, but draw them out through the water. As they 
go through the Red Sea. Pharaoh had ordained that the children of Israel would be killed in the water. And yet, ultimately, it would be through the water that the children of Israel would be delivered. And the army of the Egyptians would be crushed. Our God is so amazing that he uses the efforts of his enemies to carry out his own plan of salvation. This is true throughout the entire Bible. We even see this in the gospel. Matthew 26 says this, And as they were eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him, one after another, Is it I, Lord? He answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. And then he says this, The Son of Man goes as it is written of him. And so it is the sovereign will of God throughout all eternity that the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, would go, would be betrayed, and be killed on a cross. But then he goes on and says, But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. The cross of Jesus Christ, the cross of Jesus Christ was the effort of wicked men to eliminate the Son of God. But it was also the purpose of God to make wicked men his children. Do you catch that? The cross was the purpose of wicked men to kill the Son of God. But it was also the intention of God, the purpose of God, to make wicked men his sons. You see, whatever the enemies of God are doing, God is using it to accomplish his plan of salvation. This is such a great comfort for us as we hear of the persecution of the church around the world, as we pray and we seek justice on their behalf, knowing that persecution will only accomplish God's plan of salvation. Because to live is Christ and to die is gain. We have a great God who uses the efforts of his enemies to accomplish his plan of salvation. Let me end with this. The other day, one of my friends who's new to town had uh, problems with his car. And he called me and he said, hey, do you have a mechanic that you take your car to? You know, a place that's honest, that won't overcharge you, that will do a good job, that won't fix anything that doesn't need to be fixed. Do you have a mechanic that you would recommend? And the reason he asked this, and many of us would ask this question, is because he knew that the best indicator of faithful service was their past performance. That if they had treated me well, that if they were honest for me, if they had done well on my car, that they would do the same towards him. This is the premise that Moses is writing on. He's banking on the fact that the best indicator of whether or not God will be faithful to you and to the Israelites in the future is if he has been faithful in the past. Remember again, the first readers of this book of Exodus were the Israelites, people who were delivered by God from Egypt. People had gone to the promised land, stood on the edge, looked into it, sent spies in. Spies that came back and said, these people are too big. And so the Israelites did not believe the promises of God. They feared man more than they feared God. They rejected the land and then they went to go wander in the wilderness for 40 years. And now they are asking the question, 
Will his promise ever come true? Will we ever make it to that promised land, that land flowing with milk and honey? And so Moses, in writing Exodus, is saying to them, you can trust him. You can trust him with your life. He has a plan. He will fulfill his promise even when you are unfaithful. You know, in counseling, I often warn couples to never use the word always or never, right? Because it's always, almost always never true when they use the word always or never, right? Like my husband, he never helps around the house. Well, probably true a lot of times, but probably he helps sometimes or you know, my wife, she's always nagging me. Well, it might be true a lot of the time, but it's not always true. But what we see in this passage is that we can trust God because God always fulfills his promises. Because God always uses our suffering for good. Because God always blesses those who fear him. And because God always, always, always accomplishes his plan of salvation. Let's pray.